0: It's Tuesday, December 6th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, Candles will play stunt double for actors in a new staging of Shakespeare's most violent play. Plus, we take a detour down the path of Shakespearean conspiracies. And in other news, the moon just got its own infrastructure package. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. To keep audiences going to see Shakespeare four centuries after his death, you have to get creative sometimes. Maybe you set the play in the 1950s or in the present day. Maybe you swap the gender of all the characters, perform it in British or American sign language, give it a sci-fi bent, add some augmented reality elements, an immersive choose your own adventure set, or situate the play in South Harlem with a community of West African immigrants, like Shakespeare in the Park here in New York did with Merry Wives of Windsor last year. All of those examples and much more have actually been produced. And most of the time, they can actually tie a really deep and interesting reason for their adaptation to the original text or to the context of Shakespearean productions in the playwright's day. But a new production of Titus Andronicus at the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse at the Globe Theatre in London is getting really creative. Each character will have a candle avatar which gets inflicted with acts of violence instead of the human cast member in this famously gory play. Titus Andronicus is typically credited as Shakespeare's first tragedy after a string of histories and comedies first staged in the 1590s. It's believed to have been co-written with dramatist George Peel, one of Shakespeare's few plays to have a broadly agreed-upon collaborator. Though part of the source of the whole, did Shakespeare actually write all those plays, did he even exist, conspiracy, is the fact that much of theater in that era was fairly collaborative. Playwrights were borrowing from and inspiring each other all the time as they hung out in local pubs and attended each other's shows. The conspiracy also, by the way, the idea that Shakespeare didn't actually write his plays, isn't some age-old mystery with evidence dating back to his own time in the 1500s, but rather, wait for it, an invented tradition by classist white people in the 1800s. I will never get over how many things that we think are hundreds of years old were just made up with the intention of seeming old by Americans and Brits with an agenda in the 19th century. In this case, according to Bill Bryson and his biography of Shakespeare, an Ohio woman named Delia Bacon became obsessed with the idea that Francis Bacon, not verifiably her ancestor, but she seems to have at least wished, if not believed he were, actually wrote Shakespeare's plays. Now where she came up with this, no one knows. She was unfortunately a bit unstable and years later ended up passing away believing that she was the Holy Ghost. A reverend named James Wilmot did actually question Shakespeare's authorship back in 1785. But those doubts weren't revealed again until 1932, and despite what some people would have you believe, there really were no substantial questions of authorship from the time of Shakespeare's death until Delia Bacon in the 1850s. Now, Seizing on this idea, she managed to get funding for a four-year research trip to England, but quoting Bryson, Her research methods were singular, to say the least. She spent 10 months in St. Albans, Francis Bacon's hometown, but claimed not to have spoken to anyone during the whole of that time. She sought no information from museums or archives and politely declined her contact Thomas Carlyle's offers of introductions to the leading scholars. Instead, she sought out locations where Bacon had spent time and silently absorbed atmospheres, refining her theories by a kind of intellectual osmosis. In 1857, she produced her magnum opus, The Philosophy of the Plays of Shakespeare Unfolded. It was vast, unreadable, and odd in almost every way. End quote. Despite that, it somehow made quite the splash. Perhaps bolstered by its introduction by Scarlet Letter author Nathaniel Hawthorne, who almost immediately regretted doing so and admitted he didn't actually read the book before writing the introduction. But the Francis Bacon conspiracy really took off with figures as prominent as Mark Twain, Henry James, and later Sigmund Freud and Helen Keller, becoming engaged in what often amounted to a kind of national treasure-like search for codes in the text of the plays, which would reveal their true author's name. And whether Francis Bacon or a number of other candidates that emerged throughout the 20th century, like Edward DeVere, the Earl of Oxford, or fellow playwright Christopher Marlowe, none of the arguments quite hold up to any examination, despite such respected outlets as PBS, The New York Times, and Scientific American continually platforming such conspiracies— Over 50 historical figures have at one point been put forward as the true author of Shakespeare's plays, and the crux of many of those arguments come down to the idea that such a vast and diverse body of work—slapstick comedies, heart-wrenching tragedies, meticulous histories, and tender sonnets—couldn't possibly be the work of one man, especially a country boy without a university education. But that's not only a rather limiting view on the potential of people without the privilege of a well-regarded education, it also ignores the many markers of Shakespeare's provincial country boy dialect and expertise throughout his texts. His London contemporaries made fun of some of his provincialisms, such as his continual use of thou as the informal, singular version of the formal, or plural, you Even in Shakespeare's time, thou was becoming outdated and seen as a bit quaint. There are so many examples of Shakespeare not caring about sounding like the working-class country boy he was among all the urbane London types that I have a completely unsubstantiated theory that a not insignificant amount of the words and phrases he invented may have just been common ways of speaking among the working class where he grew up in Stratford, but were received as brand new to the more upper-class or vogue Londoners. Kind of like how some parts of the internet will sometimes think that they came up with a new word or phrase that has actually been popular in African American vernacular English for decades. Experts say there is no prior evidence for many of Shakespeare's words, so I'm probably completely off base here, but evidence is largely reliant on surviving written documents, which means the written record is often restricted to the classes which had access to education and writing materials. But anyways, my point is that Shakespeare, as genius as he was and as complex as his writing especially became over the years, was not without his flaws. He made repeated geographic errors, especially in his Italian plays, and frequently wrote in anachronisms like the ancient Egyptians playing billiards. And he was relatively unapologetic about his upbringing and how he chose to express himself linguistically. But he was still a working writer, Certain of his plays have the marks of appealing to the good graces of the royal court, especially when King James succeeded Queen Elizabeth to the throne and became the official patron of Shakespeare's company. And for more on Shakespeare under King James, I highly recommend James Shapiro's book The Year of Lear, which, though published in 2015, is an unintended rebuttal to that early pandemic hustle culture argument that since Shakespeare wrote King Lear while he was essentially in lockdown during outbreak of the plague, we should all apply ourselves just as well towards our own masterpieces. The reality was more that Shakespeare was overworked and rushing to meet unrealistic expectations set by his boss, the king. Shapiro also has a whole book debunking the authorship question. Link in the show notes to both of those. Anyways, early in Shakespeare's career, you can also see him trying to find his footing as a playwright, both in tone and in choice of subject matter that he thought might be appealing to the London crowd. Which brings us all the way back to Titus Andronicus. London audiences in the late 1500s were out for blood. Literally. A popular pastime was going to an arena to watch a bunch of captive animals fight each other. Dogs, bulls, and especially bears would be baited to attack each other pretty much to the death. This horrific and graphic entertainment was what theaters had to compete with. So in addition to building some of their structures to mimic the animal-baiting arenas, some playwrights wrote exceptionally violent plays, rife with murder, stabbing, assault, and some of the most creatively nightmarish scenarios you'd more expect to see in a modern slasher film. Some of that style, with a bit more plot to them, would later be dubbed revenge plays. That is, when the protagonist is out for revenge for some type of evil done onto them, or thought to have been done. And that is where Titus Andronicus slots in. Here's how Shakespeare's Globe describes the play. Quote, after a brutal ten-year battle, honored Roman general Titus Andronicus embarks on an era of bloodshed when he refuses to show mercy to the eldest son of Tamora, Queen of the Goths. Betrayed by his nation and with his family in ruins, Titus seeks justice the only way he knows how, tooth for tooth and limb for limb, end quote. And they mean that literally— Their content guidance for this production reads, quote, This play contains incidents and themes of anti-black racism, sexual assault and its aftermath, extreme violence and death, including bodily mutilations, cannibalism, rape, and self-harm. This content may be extremely upsetting for many, end quote. Yeah, no kidding. When they last staged this play in 2014, there were reports of audience members fainting, which is probably part of why the company has chosen to focus all the violence on the candles this time. We, just writ large, perhaps do not have the same threshold for gore that theater goers did in the 1590s when Shakespeare was writing this play to compete with the animal-baiting arenas. Now, the textual content and emotion of this Shakespeare's most deadly play will still be there, though, and in a way, leaving a bit more to the audience's imagination might even make it more haunting. Quoting The Guardian, Each character will, The Guardian understands, have a candle avatar that in turn is pummeled, gored, or snuffed out completely when the text dictates. Characters may use meat cleavers, or heat guns, or metal tenderizers to inflict the violence. Sometimes the spraying wax means safety equipment will be needed. The show, which runs from January to April, has an all-female cast— It will feel like the audience is in a torture chamber, said one theater source. A spokesperson for Shakespeare's Globe said, "...the intimate, candlelit Sam Wanamaker Playhouse will become a feast for the senses, with sight, smell, and sound all working together to create a sort of survival-game torture chamber holding the action of the play." candles, standing in for characters, will be smashed, melted, and disfigured. This is the only theater to use real flame from over a hundred candles per show. What could be more perfect to get across the fragility of human life and the horror of the play? End quote. As I said at the top, these creative stagings always find an intriguing justification for their choices, and... Yeah, the fragility of human life as represented through the mutilation of hot red wax is something. Also, not for nothing, I know that fire safety has much improved since the late 1500s, and this recreation of Shakespeare's Globe was specifically built with modern fire protections, but it feels pretty bold to be using 100 lit candles in such dangerous ways inside a theater named for one that was famous for burning down. Except apparently you do because even though you can fly to the moon, you gotta be able to get around once you're up there. So NASA has awarded a $57 million contract to develop infrastructure on the moon. The award went to Austin, Texas-based Icon, a company best known for their 3D-printed homes, and specifically refers to developing the construction technologies to build lunar infrastructure including landing pads, habitats, and roads. Quoting NextGov, The new award will help ICON's Olympus construction system, which is designed to use local resources on the Moon and Mars as building materials, according to the announcement. ICON will use a lunar-gravity simulation flight to bring its technology into space. The company will also utilize samples of lunar regolith, a layer of debris covering the Moon's surface, to examine their behavior in simulated lunar gravity. This will help inform construction approaches. Icon noted that the technology will help establish the critical infrastructure necessary for a sustainable lunar economy, including, eventually, longer-term lunar habitation. End quote. This is not Icon's first collaboration with NASA. They 3D-printed a 1,700-square-foot Martian habitat, the Mars Dune Alpha, that will be used for an analog mission next year, aka year-long missions that simulate the experience of living on the surface of Mars but which are conducted here on Earth. As ICON co-founder and CEO Jason Ballard put it in the company's press statement, Project Olympus is about changing the space exploration paradigm from there and back again to there to stay. The development of roads on the moon is particularly striking to me as part of that there to stay plan. You know, thinking about permanent infrastructure and a continual human presence on the moon at all is kind of mind boggling. But roads have historically held such weight in the expansion of civilizations and in the conquering of one empire over another Sometimes I think of them as one of the most significant ways that humans leave their mark on the natural world as dominant over nature and other animals. By building roads throughout the moon, we will truly be claiming it as our own. And by our own, do I mean humanity or do I mean the United States? That I think is a question that is yet to be answered. You know, Shakespeare wrote so much about the sea. About shipwrecks, about pirates, about going off on long journeys across oceans. And I have often thought that in his time, all these exciting and unexpected discoveries happening in the New World must have felt a bit like space exploration feels to us. If perhaps not now, certainly how it felt in the mid 20th century space age. Like if Shakespeare were writing today, I bet his works would be filled with stories about returning astronauts and subplots featuring the moon and Mars. He would be a total space bro. Anyways, that is my very weak justification for tacking a segment about the moon onto my accidentally very long soapbox about Shakespeare. So that's gonna be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.